There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Stocks for beginners. ESG. This uh, makes you think that you're contributing to the environment by investing in funds that are about five times as expensive as index funds. And uh, actually, it does no good for the environment. There are other ways you can do that. I mean, if it weren't for that five times higher fee, those funds would probably do about the same on average as, uh, as an index fund, except you have to pay five times as much to invest in them. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Sauntering through the expensive, glossy outputs of the professional investment field, you may glimpse arcane, sophisticated-sounding articles suggesting the discourses of an elite core of exquisitely knowledgeable experts. Yet, professional investors don't do any better than the random investment picks of a gaggle of monkeys. That's a quote from my guest today, Michael Edisus. Hello, Michael. Hello. Uh, good morning, Phil. Michael Edisus is an accomplished mathematician and economist, an adjunct associate professor in the Division of Environment and Sustainability at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, managing partner special advisor at M1K LLC, and an author and writer of numerous articles across a range of financial publications. And that's only a brief summation of his bio, which I will include in full in the episode blog post. Let's start by talking about that quote of yours. Did that gaggle of monkeys run a managed fund, and how can we invest in it? Um, The uh, gaggle of monkeys certainly do run lots of funds. I mean, like tens of thousands of of funds, uh, in spite of all the sophistication. uh, They uh, do uh, actually worse than a gaggle of monkeys would. This will be quite startling. Among those tens of thousands of funds are university endowment funds, such as uh, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth, Cornell, MIT. And uh, those uh, endowment funds uh, comprise billions of dollars, and they are run by uh, dozens, in some cases hundreds, of professional investment managers who presumably have access to uh, Nobel Prize winners on campus, and they hire many professional investment managers. In fact, the average fund hires 180 outside investment managers. So uh, you would assume that they have the highest level of sophisticated financial knowledge, and including the mathematics of investment and so forth and so on. And yet, if you had invested in a total market index fund, which you can get from uh, Vanguard, uh, BlackRock, for a fee of about a 20th of a percent a year, you would have done much better than all of those funds, all of them, over the past 12 years. So that gives you an idea 
how well they do or how poorly. Why do you think that is, Michael? Because they spend too much on fees, number one, on average about a, a one and a half percent a year on fees for all of those uh, outside managers they hire. And that doesn't even include their their own uh, in-house investment managers' salaries. And the market is reasonably efficient. Uh, that is to say, the prices of stocks move unpredictably. And extra knowledge, particularly what is supposed to be sophisticated quantitative knowledge helps not one bit. You just let the market do its thing and it basically works in your favour. Yeah, I mean, the idea of the stock market was uh, that uh, you you buy a stock uh, when the company issues the stock. It used to be you had a stock certificate, you put it in the drawer, and then when you need the money 30, 40, 50 years later, you take it out of the drawer and you uh, sell it. And there's no reason why you would do any better buying and selling it in the interim. In fact, if you do it a lot, it will just cost you some fees, which will worsen your result. Michael, you've co-authored the book, The Three Simple Rules of Investing, Why Everything You've Heard About Investing is Wrong and What to Do Instead. What are those three simple rules? And I'm assuming that um, passive investing and uh, putting the stock certificates in the drawer are part of it. Yeah, they're just very general uh, rules. The first one is uh, simplify your options because there are so many apparently uh, different uh, investment options, you should simplify them to really only three. Second one is look only forward. That is, don't look at the past performance of an investment to help you decide whether to invest in it because prices change unpredictably and the past is no guide whatsoever. And the third rule is screen out noise which is to say there's an awful lot of noise coming from uh, people talking about finance and investments. And uh, if you follow the first two options, then uh, you don't need to listen to any of that. Listeners know that I'm always banging on about diversification, and that doesn't mean buying different stocks. Diversification means being invested in a range of asset classes like bonds, real estate, precious metals, and now... Wine. Wine is an asset class that's been around for hundreds of years, but until now, only available to the mega wealthy. VinoVest makes it easy to invest in wine. They have a team of world-class sommeliers who evaluate wine and determine which ones will gain value over time. You own the wines in your portfolio outright. You can buy, sell and even drink them whenever you want. There's a case of wine in a warehouse with your name on it. Wine has a third of the volatility of the stock market and has outperformed global equities over the past 30 years with 10.6% annualised returns, proving that the returns can be as full-bodied as your favourite Napa cab. Go to zen.ai slash stocksforbeginners to receive two months of fee-free investing. Be sure to mention that Stocks for Beginners is helping you save on two months of management fees. It's time to start investing with VinoVest today. That's zen.ai slash stocksforbeginners. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I think a lot of listeners come to my podcast because they've picked up on discussions on social media, on Twitter, um, the financial media from advertising and the slick and glossy promotions of some of these financial companies and they're, they're very confused with it but um, you actually believe it's as simple as that you can just tune out the noise and um, work out what you can safely ignore and invest wisely it is it is as simple as that there are three let's say for virtually everybody for almost everybody now the trouble is if i if i say for almost everybody people will think what i mean is for all but the most sophisticated investors, but I've already showed you that the most sophisticated investors don't do well. What I mean by saying for almost everybody is that, say if you're Bill Gates, okay, and uh, I would love to be Bill Gates, not for the money, not not for the, you know, the problem of, of being recognized in public, I don't think it's worth it, but I would love to be him because of what he can invest in. You know, unfortunately, that runs into problems, too. So, for example, to try to solve the climate change problem, he has invested in uh, new nuclear technologies. Now, that takes a very large lump sum of money to be able to do this. But he's not investing in the, this is not in the stock market. This is investing in startup companies that need the money. And that's what uh, a company does. First, it can get money from somebody like Bill Gates, somebody, you know, so-called angel investor. It can get money from venture capital, but then eventually it goes public. And almost all of the investing that social media is about is about those stocks um, that are available in the marketplace after a company has gone public. Well, after that has happened, the company already has its money. What should be happening is that those people who bought the initial stock offering or bought it right after it came on the market should be having their shares in the drawer, so to speak, and taking them out 30, 40, 50 years later when they need the money. But instead, they're trading them like crazy. But that doesn't do a thing for the company. It doesn't do a thing for the technology. It doesn't help in any way at all. And it doesn't help the environment. It doesn't help the uh, you know social structure uh, to trade stocks in the in the secondary market. So uh, what virtually everybody should do is just buy uh, a well diversified basket of stocks and keep them. Don't trade. Don't think about it. Don't watch the performance. Just sell it later when you need the money. Now, fortunately, you can buy a basket, very well diversified basket of stocks or bonds by buying an index fund. There are mutual funds uh, and so-called ETFs or exchange traded funds, which are essentially the same. They're also mutual funds. You can you can buy. There are three. 
so-called total market index fund, which is actually just all the U.S. companies. You can buy a total international index fund, which is all the non-U.S. companies, and you can buy a total market bond fund. So that's all you need to invest those three funds. And in fact, you can you can buy a combination of the U.S. and and uh, international. I think it's called the total world fund. So you you only need two or three investment vehicles and this is this is thanks in effect to the advance of technology although it's extremely simple technology but it's something that became available only about 45 years ago to the general public and also it's uh, something that's only become aware and top of mind for people maybe only over the last 10 or 15 years or so yeah there's been a lot more awareness of late the the evidence that this is the only sane way to invest, piled up for decades. But I think it it only finally started to penetrate uh, in the last uh, 10, 15 years. And now there's been a, a rush to buy those funds. But of course, the investment business, which is uh, wants to make as much money as it has become accustomed to, uh, needs to find another way. And the public very conveniently provided them with another way, which they just leaped on, which is called ESG. And this uh, makes you think that you're contributing to the environment by investing in funds that are about five times as expensive as index funds. Uh, And uh, actually, it does no good for the environment at all. There are other ways you can do that. I mean, if it weren't for that five times higher fee, those funds would probably do about the same on average as uh, as an index fund, except you have to pay five times as much to invest in them. ESG, that concept has become one of those buzzwords that's become a marketing tool for ETFs. That's what my belief is as well. Right. And sustainability. I mean, I have I have interesting story about sustainability, but I won't go into that. I mean, I know the, the, the whole history and I know I know who came up with the word and I'm sure he never would have expected it to suddenly become such a widespread buzzword. Oh, you can't speak to that point? Um, okay, the problem is how to do it briefly because there's a whole backstory. Yeah. Long ago in the sense of like 50, 60 years ago, the environmental movement really just just liked wilderness, uh, and uh, that's the way I felt since I was like ten years old. And uh, I felt that people were the problem, and the population was growing rapidly. So there was a lot of concern about population growth uh, starting in about 1968 or earlier. That was the um, the Club of Rome period, wasn't it? Well, the Club of Rome thing was the so-called Limits to Growth. That was 1973. Paul Ehrlich's book, uh, he's still around. The Population Bomb was 1968. That got a great deal of attention because he predicted famines that in which hundreds of millions of people would die in the 70s. He was spectacularly wrong as well. He was spectacularly wrong, but for a specific reason. I mean, you know, some people would say, but you know, people like that will always be wrong for this reason. He was wrong for the reason that Norman Borlaug and others uh, developed crops that yielded three or more times as much from the same area of land. 
That's right. It was the Green Revolution, wasn't it? Right. And that basically solved the food problem. And also, uh, people started this something called the demographic transition when children started not dying so much. I mean, it's improvement in health. Uh, people started having less children, so the, the population started to, to level off and didn't explode like a, like a bomb, as, as, uh, as Ehrlich uh, foresaw. However, at that time, when there was all this concern about population, there were solutions proposed and actually put into practice, like uh, at that time, the, the iPhone of the day was the transistor radio. And so the idea was you give Indian men a transistor radio in exchange for becoming sterilized. So if they became sterilized so they couldn't have children, they would be rewarded with a transistor radio. And after a while, people started to think this is not very humane. And so there was a, a problem about, you know, how can we put together preserving the environment and allowing people the world over to pursue economic development, which they, they all want. And so this um, commission was formed called the Brundtland Commission, and it produced a report in 1987 called Our Common Future. And it coined the, the, the term sustainable development, which meant uh, economic development that uses resources uh, sustainably, that is to say, without reducing the ability of future generations to use resources. And I happened to be at a conference one time, and I was sitting with two or three people, and one, one of them said, you know, I came up with that term, sustainable development. I was in, in, on the staff to the commission, and uh, people were thinking, what can, yeah, what can we call this? We need, we need a, good, a good phrase. He proposed that term. His name was and still is uh, uh, Lloyd Timberlake. That's amazing to hear the backstory about that and where the term came from and the history that's now been shoehorned into the ESG basket. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's become, I mean, everything becomes a buzzword. I, I also taught a course on cryptocurrency, and uh, I think it was the first course on cryptocurrency um, almost five years ago now in Hong Kong. And uh, I mean, it was starting to happen then, but things just get buzzwordified and blockchain became buzzwordified. So now if you've got a database, you, you want to call it a blockchain because then people get excited. Database doesn't excite anybody. <laughs> well, it hasn't excited anyone for about 20 or 30 years since it first appeared in Windows 905 or 3.1. Uh, so with sustainability, I, I recall a recent article that you wrote that mentioned nuclear energy as being part of the energy transition. Do you think this is possible considering the um, resistance to it and the cost of nuclear power? Well, it certainly is possible in uh, China and Russia and uh, uh, many countries that they are engaged in commerce with. So that Russia is providing uh, nuclear power plants to other countries. So it's certainly possible. In the United States, it's a tough go because uh, as this book that I read recently uh, shows um, the uh, regulation, which is the reason why it has increased so much in cost, is going to be very hard to get rid of. And the, and the deeply entrenched 
belief that it's dangerous is going to be hard to, to get rid of. Uh, in fact, it is less dangerous than other forms of energy, probably even than solar and wind. And uh, that's going to be very difficult to overcome that uh, because the, the, the fear of nuclear energy was uh, set in place by the same forces that believed in nuclear energy, but they also wanted to ban the bomb. And so they wanted to make sure people were scared about nuclear weapons testing. And so if they were scared about fallout from nuclear weapons testing, that served their purposes. And that meant that um, even very widespread radiation at the same levels that you get radiated just being, you know, next to a stone wall or something like that had to become fearful. And that's going to be very hard to get out of the U.S. population. I don't think the Chinese have the same feeling. And uh, any form of energy production is going to have um, trade-offs, really. There's no perfect energy form, is there? Right, right. There is no benign energy source. They all have uh, side effects. And uh, you know, coal is probably is the worst and nuclear power, the rising cost is just a result of this uh, regulatory cycle, well-intentioned. Making something that's already pretty safe, just a, a few ends of a degree, even safer, I'm assuming. Right, exactly, exactly. I, I, I met a, a, a nuclear uh, energy consultant one time. Strangely, it happened to be while I was walking on a Croatian island and sitting at a tiny cafe, and this guy was at the table next to me and I struck up a conversation with him and he, he said, you know, over the past 40 years, uh, there was a relentless effort to reduce the cost of solar energy and wind energy. And uh, for nuclear energy, there was only a relentless effort to increase the safety, even to the point where it made it not more safe and no effort to reduce the cost. Let's get back to investing then. And um, you're a mathematician. That's your, your background and your expertise. And a lot of people come into the investment markets thinking that you have to be good at maths. Is that something that you believe to be true? No. I mean, as I said, to do the best job of investing your own money or somebody else's money, you just invest in those three index funds. And this obviously needs no math at all. I mean, those, those people at those... Uh, endowment funds and pension funds and so on, these professional people, they, uh, they were awash in mathematics or, or... And modeling as well, yeah. Yeah, well, I, so I have a PhD in mathematics, and then I happened to get into the, uh, the finance business by, you know, I didn't really know what it was, but I joined a brokerage firm, and it was supposed to be a firm that was one of the most sophisticated, and they sent me to uh, conferences of things called... Institute for Quantitative Research and Finance. And I, I have to tell you, I was appalled at the level of mathematics. They don't really understand mathematics. They use the wrong tools for the wrong purposes. So the, the math in that field is not good. I constantly write articles critiquing the math in uh, what's called the top financial journals. Some of them, the math is okay, but they draw conclusions from the math that simply aren't in the math. They leap to the conclusions that they wanted to leap to in the first place. They write a bunch of mathematics, and then they say, this shows that. And 
every time they say this shows that, I want to say, like hell it does. It doesn't <laughs> show that at all. It's just some math. And um, you reside in Hong Kong. Do you have any, any experience of the local stock market there, the Hang Seng? Not particularly, but I mean, Hong Kong is the world's third, third largest stock market. But this is embedded in the, uh, for example, the Vanguard uh, Total International index fund. So it, it will have some of those same stocks, uh, just like the Hang Seng Index Fund. But if for some reason you specifically wanted to invest in, uh, in stocks in this region, the Hang Seng Index Fund would be a good way to do it. And that would basically include all the, all the stocks on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Any big differences? I mean, I believe, I may be wrong about this, but um, they only have numbers rather than ticker codes for companies on the Hang Seng. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have to tell you, I haven't really gotten involved with this, but yes, they have numbers. Yeah, that must reduce the emotion a little bit because there's so much emotion involved in investing and even the name sometimes is there to market something. Yeah, I don't know whether that's true. There are different uh, versions of the same company stock available in the mainland and to uh, external investors. Well, China has, uh, you know, it just so happens they they have a much less developed uh, stock and bond markets than the United States. The United States uh, has the, the largest uh, stock market, but uh, China's is not not very well developed yet. Let's talk a little bit about your work with M1K. And again, we're talking about ESG here? Um, not really. No, no, no. Uh, well, the principal partner in, uh, in M1K, uh, a guy named Pascal uh, Schoenberg, he used to work for uh, J.P. Morgan Chase and uh, others. And um, his, his expertise is, is in something that uh, truly is uh, useful, financing. And you could put it in the ESG category, but... Uh, like nobody knows about it except a whole bunch of insiders, and that is providing the the financial capital for uh, solar and wind farms, solar uh, PV farms and wind farms, and that gets quite complicated, just like so many other things because of the tax rules. Um, so he's particularly an expert on something called tax equity, which is a a long story I won't get into, but it provides the ability to build solar energy uh, installations and wind farms. And uh, some of it gets quite interesting and, and explains how some of these companies like Apple and Microsoft and so forth can uh, resolve to reach net zero emissions. It's because they, with something called a virtual power purchase agreement, they can buy the uh, so-called environmental attributes of a project, and that means they're buying the renewable energy credits of a project. They do this in large part, of course, to say they invest in renewable energy, and they're not exactly investing it because there's also other investors needed to build the project. But they do help to enable the project to go ahead. Uh, in uh, part of the the deal in a in a VPPA is that they guarantee a uh, a constant flow of income to the project, which it can't be sure of uh, because electricity prices fluctuate. 
but with a guarantee of a constant uh, flow of revenue, they can go to a bank and get the additional financing they need. So it's a very useful thing. I mean, it's so far from what most people understand is ESG investing, which is just all about investing in the secondary market, which doesn't do anything to fund solar and wind. It's, it's just people trading among themselves, stocks in companies that have already gotten their money. Oh, that's interesting. So are you saying then that the ESG market is enabled by companies like this, who by becoming customers and by providing the cash flow to other companies that are providing renewable energy, that there's like this market that exists that most people are unaware of? Yeah, I think most people are unaware of this uh, direct financing of solar and wind energy projects. I mean, I don't think anybody in that area particularly calls it ESG because they don't need to. They're not marketing to the general public. But of course, it, it contributes to uh, reduction of uh, carbon dioxide emissions. So if listeners want to find out more about you, Michael, and um, your work, how can they find you? Well, I, I write a lot of articles. Uh, more of my articles appear in a, an online journal called Advisor Perspectives than anywhere else. And they, they cover the various topics that I've talked about here. Uh, more of them are about finance than about anything else. Some of them get quite technical and mathematical uh, in finance, but uh, the ones that are the most technical uh, tend to be the ones that show how wrong the articles in the financial journals are. Uh, So uh, they're kind of like counter uh, mathematical finance articles. (laughs) So you're kind of a maths buster. Uh, Yeah, you know, who's that magician who liked to... uh, he liked to debunk other magicians, I forget. It's, it's had a, oh, the, yeah, Randy, the magnificent Randy. Yeah, James Randy, that's right. And um, he's famous for busting Yuri Geller and his um, spoon bending. Right, right, yeah. Michael Edisis, thank you very much for joining me today. It's been a great pleasure chatting with you. Thank you, my pleasure. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Stocks for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Stocks for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.